Hi there, I'm Matt Morrison. You may know me or have heard my voice on pinball podcasts such as the Twit Podcast, the Pinball Show, and most recently Craig Bobby's Midweek Show. I thought it'd be fun to sprinkle in some interesting interviews into TPN's mix occasionally. A lot has been said about Cactus Canyon Remake. The more I researched the original game, the more I wanted to talk with the original team that designed the game. Regardless if CGC remakes the game or not, it's a really great story and insight into the last traditional pinball machine Bally Williams ever created. One person on the design team stands out for his lead design role on Cactus Canyon and his unbelievable engineering work on games before and after Cactus Canyon. That person is Tom Capera. Without further ado, let's go behind the curtain with Tom Capera. All right, Matt Morrison here, your weekly, sometimes not so weekly, Chicago gaming correspondent. I wanted to give you guys a special news episode leading into season two of the Pinball Show with a name you may or may not have heard before, Mr. Thomas Capera. Mr. Capera was a Bally Williams mechanical engineer who worked on games such as Corvette, Johnny Mnemonic, NBA Fastbreak, and Cactus Canyon, the game that we're going to talk most about today. But he's also worked for Stern on Rolling Stone, Avengers, and Transformers, the home pin versions. Star Trek, Wodenelli, Game of Thrones, Beatles, and Elvira's House of Horrors, and probably a few games that I couldn't find on IPDB or Pinside. Welcome to the show, Mr. Capera. How are you doing today? Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. I wanted to go back in time a little bit here with the Bally Williams stuff and, and touch on a few games, specifically to Johnny Mnemonic, that glove neck. What was it like designing that, working on that? So that was actually really interesting. They had never done anything quite that elaborate before. And, you know, we had this, you know, that was a George Gomez design game. And, you know, we had this crazy idea that we wanted, you know, those gloves in the movie, you know, were pretty much floated in space. And we wanted to try to replicate that. So we wanted to catch the ball in the air and then go put it somewhere else. And um, it was it was quite the undertaking um, up until (laughs) that point. I don't think they had ever done anything quite that elaborate. I mean, it's basically it's 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 an X, Y table. Um, like you see, you know, all the all the 3D printers that exist today, it's basically that technology, wow. except, you know, we did it 25 years ago. Yeah, that's really incredible. I mean, the first time I played that game, and it's a game that I've, I've wanted to own for quite a while, but it's it's so strange. Like, it slips through my fingers every time, like, I'm either full on space and I can't fit it in the game room or, um, you know, it's just way far away. I can't make the drive to get it. It's it's a game that eludes me. Um, but, yeah, that, that hand mech is incredible. And and one of our correspondents, Dr. John, it's a game that he's, he says he'll never sell. It's, it's uh, one of his favorites, so... That and, and Corvette had the uh, the engine, the LT1 that kind of shook. Was that was that just a coil kind of attached that would would bounce up and down? Or so yeah, that again was a crazy new mech that they had never done. You know, so when we did Corvette, George, myself, Tom Uban, that was the first game all of us had ever done. We were a brand new team, and you know, we brought with us. We had come from other industries, so we brought with us technology that you know, the pinball group had never used or seen before. So on that engine, you you know, we start, you know, the first thought was, yeah, let's put a coil on it and we'll shake it back and forth. But that's not really how an engine vibrates in a car. You know, it's not just a mechanical left, right um, motion. Like, like uh, Brian Eddy had on the uh, Indiana Jones. You know, he had that play field, that rock, that rock back and forth. That's what it was. So we didn't want that motion. You know, that was 
that was not what an engine really does. And, you know, so we were crazy. We're like, well, we could make it, you know, sinusoidal. And, and sometimes it moves a lot and sometimes a little, depending on you rev it. And when you rev it, it twists to one side, you know, right. just, just like a real engine. So that unit actually has Hall effect sensors in it. And we designed a Hall effect system where we, we always know where the engine is and then we can feed um, a, a signal to the coils to control how much the coils move left and right and the speed and all that. And it was, I mean, it was extremely elaborate. That is incredible because, it, you know, they, they actually use Hall effect sensors in cars. <laughs> like, you know, uh, you know, your crank sensors that actually tell your ignition coals to fire a lot of those run on a Hall effects type sensor. So. Right. And, and again, you know, we were, we were new to pinball, but we had come from, you know, hardcore industry that, you know, uh, Tom Uban and I, and so we're like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I had been out designing CAT scan equipment for the, for government and NASA projects. Right. I mean, gigantic wow. CAT, uh, CAT scan devices. So I'm like, yeah, that's no big deal. We'll just stick that in there. And um, it turned out to be a huge undertaking because the, the, system wasn't fast enough to keep up with the technology we had in the in the sensors wow so we really tom really struggled with the code to get that to work right and he got it but it took a very long time <laughs> way longer than yeah. than any of us thought we're like yeah let's we'll take all the sense uh, you know switch in there and we'll be done and yeah no it took it took weeks and weeks of him battling the code to get it to look right. But he got it. I mean, and it looks awesome and it does exactly what you want. And you hit the flipper button and it revs and the whole engine cants to one side. And I yeah, you know, it, yeah, it, 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 we were extremely happy the way it turned out. We were extremely stupid for thinking we should do, <laughs> do something that complex in a pinball machine. But, you know, it was it was great when it, when it was all done. It was worth all the effort. It was great. Oh yeah, it's those those two games in, in particular. And I want to get to some of the stuff on Cactus a little bit later on. But okay. th those really just you know, as a new player, when I found those games, you know, five or six years ago when I first saw them, I, I was just kind of like, who who designed this? I mean, who who actually and, and who greenlit it to put it in a game? I mean, you know, I thought it would just destroy the build of materials um, to, to be able to even do something like that. So real quick, you, you said um, you were previously working on CAT scan equipment and stuff for, for NASA. What, what was your job before getting hired at, at Bally Williams? So I, I, I was at a company called Bioimaging Research, and we designed uh, CAT scan equipment. Um, so we did... We did um, units for like the University of Texas. I did a unit for the Army for munitions plant. Um, I worked on a unit for NASA for, you know, the solid uh, rocket boosters for the space shuttle. Yeah. yeah. So so this was right after uh, there was the catastrophe and, and, and it blew up. Right. So we built a CAT scan machine that that entire rocket fits in. <laughs> and then and then we would do a CAT scan around each seal of that rocket to make sure that the seal was correct and it wouldn't, that wouldn't happen again. And then they'd lift the entire rocket off and bolt it onto the space shuttle. So, I mean, it took <laughs> when we were amazing. done. Yeah. When we were done building that thing, it took eight semi trucks to move it. Uh, we were in Lincolnshire and we moved it to Huntsville, Alabama, and it took eight semis to move that machine. That's but that's crazy. the kind of stuff I was doing. I, you know, I came from, 
you know, hardcore industry like that. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did you go from doing a project like that and to pinball? That, that seems like a, quite a jump. So when I was in college, I co-opted at um, Midway, Midway Games okay. for George Gomez in the video game group. And so I first got there during Spy Hunter. Um, and I was there right at the end of Spy Hunter. I just did a little, you know, tech, tech stuff at Spy Hunter. And then George Gomez and I built a bunch of games like Big Bat, um, which was a big mechanical game. Uh, we would pitch a ball. We pitched, it was a baseball game and we would pitch the ball through the air and then hit it with a bat. So I had to actually design this, basically this little gun that would shoot balls at the bat and then you could hit it. And it was like, you know, it was like the normal baseball games, arcade games you see where the ball rolls on the ground. This one, we actually pitched the ball in the air. Um, yeah. And we did a bunch, we did Hawk Avenger and we did Big Bat and we did, uh, we did a whole bunch of stuff over there while I was still in school co-oping. So then when George was getting ready to go to pinball, he called me and said, Hey, you know, you want to come? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I want <laughs> pinball. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. I love pinball. <laughs> so, that's way more fun than cat scan machines for rockets. You know, it really is. It's, you know, I, I mean, those machines are cool and very complex, and, and, but it's not pinball. It, since we touched on how, how complex the mechs are and Corvette and Johnny Mnemonic, a lot of people always go back and talk about Bally Williams' Toys and Magic and, and kind of that world under glass. And do you think that can be achieved with, you know, modern code and still hit a modern build of materials with a license theme? Because that, that seems to be what's what's selling primarily now. You know, it, it sounds like you guys had some some really great engineers at Bally Williams. Is that something that that we could see again today, the, that those level of mechs, but also have kind of the deep code sets we have now? I think so. I, I mean, and, and certainly now I think mechs are, they're, they're getting more magical as, as we move along. You know, we, even at Stern, we've brought in new technologies over the last few years that to help make mechs, you know, as magical as they can be. And, and yeah, I mean, I agree for a while there, things were very simple. But I sure. think the, the level of, it's not really the level of complexity, it's the level of mech, you know, we always design the mechs to achieve a goal. Sure. I mean, you never design, you know, we, you never say, hey, I gotta, I'm going to make this crazy mech, I have no idea what pinball machine it goes in or what I'm going to do with it, but I got right. this crazy mech. You always, you have the game and you want to do something in the game and the mechs are a result of that. So it, I mean, it really is a form following function, right? It, it's the game and, and what the game needs to do. And we want it to do something very cool and unique. And then we designed that mech to achieve that. So it, sure. it comes from the, the design of the game. It drives the complexity and the coolness of the mechs. Absolutely. And, and are you full-time with Stern or, or are you kind of a contract basis? I, I, I'm contract with Stern, but I, you know, I've been contract with them for quite a while. So <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Because, um, you know, I look at your history and I'm like, Gomez game, Gomez game. <laughs> and it's like, um, it, it seems like you guys work well together. We do. And, and, you know, like I said, I started first with George back when I was uh, co-oping in college. Right. So, you know, that goes back to the, you know, the early 80s. Early 80s. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and and yeah, we've done a lot of great things together because he is so I mean, he's so creative and so imaginative and, and he comes to me and, you know, like that engine. And he's like, yeah, but 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 an engine needs to look like an engine in the car and it needs to shake like this. And can we do that? And then I go, yeah, we could do that. And we could do then that. I scratch my head. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure how I'm going to do that, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> I'm curious because I've never like taken Corvette apart, but, you know, a lot of times you see some of the same driver boards or opto boards under the hood of, of different games. Did, Cor- did Corvette have a special board to drive that engine? So it, the coals? It, it did. Yeah. It, well, it had, okay. it had the hall, the hall effect sensor, which was unique to it. And then, yeah, it looks like there's four coils that drive that thing, but right. it's the way we drive them. And we, we really have a sinusoidal drive that drives those coils, which is completely unique to anything that had been done prior to that. It's really interesting. Any, any thought to bring maybe something like that back or even like Johnny's hand, you know, some type of mech that would use that technology again? Yeah, I mean, we use that. I, I've used that technology in, in other things, you know, a screwdriver like that to move things. Um, and and so absolutely, you know, that tech. And, and like you said, there's we have other Hall effect switches that have come in pinball since then. And even after we did Johnny and we we figured out the whole Hall effect switch, we used those as rollover switches. A version of that became a rollover switch in some of the late Williams games. Where did they use uh, the rollover Hall effect switch? Like I, that? I don't remember exactly which games I'd have to look, but we had we we had a Hall effect switch um, that was a result of what we did in Corvette. You know, the problem is on those the technology at the time those chips were temperature sensitive. And so you, ha- you had to tweak them. And if there was a big variance in temperature, they would start to drift. And so, you know, we only used them for a short time. We're like, yeah, this isn't <laughs> really robust enough for what we're trying to do. But, but again, you know, it, it's like everything. Once you start a technology, then you start branching off and using, you know, trying it in other things. And Speaking of sensors, you know, I don't know if you've seen the new Guns N' Roses machine by Jersey Jack, the, they're using some type of proximity sensor under inserts to detect when the ball is there. What, what do you think about that? I mean, any concerns long-term for something like that? Or No, actually, you know, I, theirs, I believe, is a, is a um, it's an IR sensor, okay. refle- reflective IR sensor, I believe. I don't know that to be true. And so it sees the ball as, as the ball goes by. But, you know, proximity sensors in, in this equipment, you know, the issue with that is they're, they're relatively expensive. Okay. Uh, and they typically price themselves out of an application. Again, I, you know, like, so those, again, are a very common technology to me and our CAT scan equipment and stuff. Again, back, you know, many, many years ago, we used a lot of that kind of stuff. And you see it in a lot of industrial equipment. The problem is they're typically pretty expensive. You know, the cheapest ones you can find are, you know, they'll be 20 or $22. Wow. That's just you just can't afford that. In a, <laughs> You're right. You know, yeah. A, per sensor. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, you know, a, a typical switch is, you know, three, $4. And, and so, you know, we were always driving to try to find, you know, a, a high end sensor that can do things we can't do with a micro switch, but we, we always battle the, well, what does that really cost? Yeah. Is, uh, is it worth it? Right. So speaking, speaking though of a, a game, this is one of my favorite, stern games i've I've been kind of raving about it for a while uh elvira's house of horrors Mm -hmm. what mechs did you specifically did you design all the major mechanisms on the game yeah i so i did that entire game so everything on that game i did so 
Um, and that was actually the, so, so my role at Stern is advanced development. Okay. Um, for years and years and years, I didn't do complete projects. I only did advanced development. So when we would get some, a crazy idea, like let's put a proximity sensor in here. So that was my role to go and see what was out there and find it and test it and prove it and get it ready for the project engineers to use that stuff in their games. Um, the other things I did, like like the metal back box on, you know, Stern now has a metal back box. So I, you know, all those cabinet changes and those metal back boxes and, and integrating the LCD and all that stuff. That's all the work I did. So I, okay, I, cool. I, did, I did the non-theme specific work. Um, I did all the top box, or the toppers. I did all the all the toppers up until Munsters, I think I had done every single one because again, really? it, was, wow. yeah, it was ancillary to what the game, the, the um, game, not the game designers, but the project engineers were doing. So, you know, they were, you know, the project engineers are embedded in their game and they're trying to get it finished and trying to get it to the production line. And then at the end, somebody says, Hey, how about a topper? And they'd be like, yeah, there's no, ch no chance I have time for that. So, so yeah, for a couple of years, I did all the toppers for them. So Elvira was actually the first time that I did a complete game for Stern. And okay. so, and so I project engineered that entire game. So I, all that stuff I did. So That's really interesting because, uh, you know, when the game first came out, People were saying, you know, well, the shots are wide. It's it's a fan layout. Um, a lot of the shots are at the back. It it doesn't really look that full. But then when they got in front of the game, this game's kind of had a slow burn, and the use market's just insane on it, you know. And and Stearns had to push back production because they, they're behind with COVID, different things. But one reason for me, you know, the it is flat plastics put together, but the house is really impressive. It comes almost to the glass, and you know the um, the crypt mech is is really unique i don't think people really understood what that exactly did till they played the game and having a multi-stage mech is something that people always like to see and that one is so effective in a small space I, I, how did that come about yeah that was so you know again that's a De dennis nordman and greg ferris designed that they were the game designers on that game and yeah they you know from the very beginning it always had a haunted house in it you know, that was that was always the plan was to have a haunted house. And and that haunted house is is it's kind of complex and it's got like nine injection molded parts on it for all the roof and the, and the canopies and stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's it an does opto in the top. <laughs> yeah, there's optos in the top and the turret spins and it, it lights up and it there's four shots that go through that house. So it's kind of it's kind of complex, but it's fun. And then the whole front is distortion printed. We actually distortion printed that front art to get it to look right. And it turned out great. I mean, it really did turn out great. Can you give me a, a difference in, in the printing, uh, distortion printing compared to a, a, the standard style or what was used on the rest of the house? Well, well, sure. So a normal, a normal play field plastic, you know, we take a sheet of clear plastic, it's PETG, and we print on it um, just like you would print in your printer, right? And then we use a laser machine and we cut all the pieces out like puzzle pieces. And that's how we make playfield plastics. Well, to, if you look at the front of the house, it's got all the contour of the house and the, and the artwork follows the plastic all the way around. It's not a bunch of little pieces. It's one piece. So d what distortion printing is, is if you, that part is vacuum formed. So you take the art and you stretch the art in all the directions, you know, left, right, top, bottom, so that when it 
you vacuum form it over a tool, the art sucks in and to the form that you have of the tool. And then the art lands in the right spot. And then when you trim it, all the windows are in line and the trim on the house is in line. And, and it's, it's, it's rather complex. Yeah, I was going to say that I'm sure that drives the cost up just that process. Um, oh, it does. It does. <laughs> it's, it's expensive tooling. It's expen- expensive to print. Um, but nothing looks like that. That's what makes it look like that. Yeah, it's really, really unique. Would you say that the markup and cost because of, of supply with COVID and, and obviously I don't think people quite understood, you know, how much went into maybe like you're talking about printing the house and, and some of the other mechs, were you surprised by the price increase or were you like, yeah, this thing was probably underpriced from the get go. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it's not really my place to talk about what Stern charges for stuff. Um, I mean, we, you know, across the world, everybody is seeing the cost of, of steel, um, you know, go up, a lot, <laughs> all, all raw materials, steel and, and, and plastic and electronics and, you know, all raw materials due to COVID are, everything is going up in cost. So, and that's not only in our industry, that's in other industries. You know, I'm still connected, you know, with my other consulting work, I'm connected to other industries as well. And, you know, I get emails from suppliers all the time, you know, the cost of metal is doubled. Sorry, we're going to have to raise our price. And, and that's just a, function of what's going on in the world right now Uh, on the other side you know elvira does have a lot of extra stuff in it that a typical cornerstone game for stern wouldn't have that makes sense so it's almost just necessity of of supply and and what's coming with with all the complications with covid so that that's pushing because we saw jersey jack just increase prices too so i'm assuming raw materials have just went up exponentially yeah i mean you know the the steel mills went through the same trouble everyone else did and they shut the steel mills down for several months and and then when you know they brought them back online they brought them back online slowly but the the pinball industry is you know up against the automotive industry right (laughs) when gm calls and orders steel that you know they take all the steel exactly (laughs) and and we're left with the scraps yeah (laughs) we'll pay you whatever you want for the scraps (laughs) right and and so yeah i mean it's just now you know everybody in the you know all the Again, you know, from what I hear from outside the pinball industry, everybody thinks things will return to normal in time. We just don't know when that is. Yeah, of course. Now, looking at other Stern games that, that were on your IPDD or pin side list, we had Star Trek and the Beatles. What, what specifically on those games, you know, did you touch mech-wise? Well, so again, like the Beatles, so that was, so I did the entire Beatles game, <laughs> even, <laughs> even though I wasn't supposed to. Um, yeah, I ended up doing the whole Beatles game. And uh, and again, that wasn't, that wasn't really part of you know, that was a, a, a little bit on the side of what Stern normally had in their production schedule. So that's how I ended up on Beatles. But yeah, I did the whole Beatles game. That was and that was fun with the big spinner. And, you know, we we tweaked that game quite a lot. And it's a fun game. Beatles, it's oh, a fun yeah. Game. Yeah, I really enjoyed shooting that game. Was it was it tough to take the older game like Sea Witch? You know, like George was talking about, it's it's not really even the same game. It is very similar in layout, but so much was moved on it that it's almost like a completely different game. And you've added magnets and opto spinners. Was that difficult to kind of work within an even more confined space? 
No, I mean, it's, it's uh, honestly, it's standard pinball. I mean, we go through that process on every game. Probably understand, you know, we make what we call Whitewoods, Whitewood 1, Whitewood sure. 2, Whitewood 3. So it's it's very common, you know, you'll make Whitewood 1 and then you go, oh, I like this shot. Oh, I don't like this shot. Oh, we should do something over here. And then you start moving things around. Um, Beatles was the very same thing. You know, we started with that Sea Witch layout. And then as we got it and we started to shoot it, you know, and George is like, oh, we should move this and we should try that. And let's add the let's add that shot on the left underneath the plastic. And, and, you know, and then we put the magnet in on the top. We're like, oh, that'd be fun if we grabbed the ball and dropped it down in there. And so it went through that development process like all the games do. You gotcha. know, you, you start we started with something similar to Sea Witch and then it was improved again and again as George shot it that, you know, he's like, Oh, I'd like this change and we should change this and change that. And, and that's what we did. And, and when you get to the end and you look at it, it is very different than where we started, but all the games are like that. <laughs> if, if you look at, if you look at a final Elvira and you look at the very first Whitewood for Elvira, you know, people go, is that the same game? And you're like, yep, that's the same game. <laughs> so. I did see a sketch of that game Dennis had, you know, it looked like the ramps were obviously a little different. Was there anything mechanically taken out that was pretty major on Elvira? I hate to keep going back to it, but I, I'm pretty fond of it. No, no, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, that game evolved a lot. So, you know, the ramps we had to change a little bit because, um, you know, we were concerned the way Dennis had them. They were very tall and and they were all the way in the back. Uh, that ramp on the left, he had it. He had it much taller than it turned out because he had his um, his loop that he puts in it. You know, that do, that drop you oh, okay. that he always puts in. Right. But being so far back. You know, I was concerned that as the game got dirty and and wear and tear on the flippers, that at some point you wouldn't be able to make that shot. It just it, you wouldn't have enough power. Right. And so we went round and round on that, and then we even changed it to steel because the steel ramps carry more speed than the plastic ramps. Wow. And um, you know, but we still had to bring it down, and when we brought it down, we we lost his little loop. Um, and but that again, that's the normal process we go through all the time. Now, the, the actual, the vault mech was actually much more complex than what ended up in the game. And we actually built uh, a couple of prototypes of a vault mech. So originally that vault mech had, you know how the vault, when it, it opens up, you, you get the skull and you can bash the skull. Sure. So at one time there were five heads in that mech. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so all the monsters that are in the house the mummy and the skull and all that, all of those were in that crypt mech as well. And so it not, it didn't have three positions. It had eight positions and we would I'm position to... different heads. Yeah. And that, uh, oh, okay. okay. It, and it was extremely complex. Yeah. I was thinking about how you would work that out. I was like, that's going to take up a lot of real estate under the play field too. It did. Uh, it did. And it was very expensive. I mean, we built a couple, I built a couple for him and we shot them. Um, and it was fun, but at the end of the day, it was it was very complex. It was very expensive. We were concerned about reliability, and you know, and for the health of the game, we thought we should pull that out and make it simpler. So that's was, what we did. Was the trunk always on the left ramp, kind of you know working the way it does with the lid opening and and then some optos down there to track ball position? Yeah, that's that okay. was that was it was always like that. Yes. 
Okay. So, I mean, some changes, but the core of the game, the heart of it still. Was the house any different? Was there any extra, you know, movement to it? No, I mean, it. We, we always knew that there would be a house there. We knew that there would be, you know, the shot up the stairs, the gar- the, set, the garage shot to the left. Right. Um, yeah, we always, that was always the intent for that. Oh, man. Is there any way uh, one of these prototype mechs could possibly make its way, you know, nobody knows about it to my address? And, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, maybe you could dig up a picture of it. I could you know, salivate over that. I probably got picture. I think, yeah, I think I, I, I think I still have that mech in a box somewhere. I don't think I threw it out. Oh man. Yeah. Well, if, as long as it's, it wouldn't be detrimental to you and start, I, I would love to see it at some point. But, yeah. uh, I'd have to ask, I'd have to ask Dern if I could show that to anybody, but yeah, no problem. that's cool to know that, you know, kind of where the game came from, because, you know, you, you always hear, well, things got removed for the bomb and oh, they, you know, they bashed this thing up because the bomb and it's like, well, it sounds like the ramps would have been a reliability issue because there's nothing worse than not having enough power and then it, the ball sitting like midway on a ramp and you can't get it out, you know, without pulling the glass or something. Right. And and again, you know, for, for most of the changes we make, it's not really about the bomb. It, it, it's not like we're like, oh, there's too much money in the game. Just take a mech out. It's always about what's what's not as reliable as we would like or what is overly complex that... You know, and, and another thing we're always concerned about is, you know, if this thing breaks in the field, what is a guy, you know, working in a dark bar with people bumping into him? What does he have to do to repair it? And, you know, if a guy's got to take it apart and it's got 75 parts and he's got to spread it all out on the floor and someone's going to come by and kick that, you know, we're like, you know, that's probably not a good idea. You know, we're really setting the guy up. And, and realistically, if that's if that game's on the street and something like that fails, that guy just turns it off. He unplugs it and walks away, right? And and so we really worry about that a lot. And things we take out are things that are just unserviceable in the field or unreliable enough. One thing on the, the LEs, and may, it may have been the early LEs like, like I have, the ball guide behind the house, was that a manufacturing thing where like what came in from the vendor wasn't correct and they, they kind of made it in the games and... It had to be swapped out. I don't know if you remember that on Elvira. Yeah, we ended up, there was a ball trap back there right? Um, that we we didn't catch until it was later. We, we had an issue with parts coming in that weren't perfect. You know, they weren't really the right parts. We thought it would be okay, so we went ahead and built it. Uh, and then later we figured out, oh, that's really a ball trap. So then we made a kit to fix that. I was amazed, like you're talking about the serviceability, because you look at the house and you think like, oh, my God, like, you know, that might that could be a nightmare to take apart. You can have it out in like a couple minutes, you know. Right. And and again, that we spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time making sure it's, you know, three, four five screws and the thing comes out. And, it, it, you know, it, it comes out as a big chunk so that you can get underneath it. But, you know, we spent a lot of time working on that end of it, you know, as much as, you know, making it look cool and do cool things. Yeah, I, I can imagine that balance of trying to make it serviceable, but also really entertaining. And I know when I took it apart, I was like, that is insane. Like, you know, they had to fit this bracket perfectly beside this ball guide for the garage. And, you know, just so you could get, you know, a, a quarter inch bit down here to, to remove these screws, you know, it, it was just enough room to, to get all that in and out. I, I could imagine that took a lot of time to, to make it serviceable. You know, It does. It does. But that's that's part of what we do. And we want that. We want a guy in the field to be able to do that and do it quickly. So that it's important. 
So, so is there anything maybe you worked on at Bally Williams or at Stern that we didn't touch on that's like people would be like, wow, I, I had no idea, you know, he did that or he worked on that. Oh, I did Steve Skull for no fear. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, so back at Bally Williams, when you were done with your game before you started up the, the next game and the game designer was working on his game, you usually had a little bit of quiet time. And whatever engineer had quiet time, they would help a team that was getting close to production release. And so it was very common for us engineers to help each other on their games. It was just part of how the whole system worked there. So, yeah, I think I... I, I think I came off a of Corvette and then um, they were working on no fear Steve's game, no fear. And they hadn't done the talking skull yet. So I ended up, I ended up doing the skull for Steve's game and that was fun. That's a fun mech. That's a really cool mech. Yeah. Looking at like rolling stones and cactus Canyon, you, you prefer flow. Did you, did you pick any up of that up from Steve or was that just something inherently you like in pinball? Yeah, no, I definitely like flow games. Um, you know, if you look at George Gomez's games, you know, and I worked with him exclusively his first four games, they're very much flow games. Um, Steve's games are very much flow games. And so I really do like George's games and Steve's games versus some of the games that are not so much about flow, but go to an area and do something and then clunk around and go to an area and do something. I, that's not That's not as much fun for me. I kind of, I think I'd prefer maybe a little bit of both at times, but you know, a game can win you over with the right mechs and, and software either way for me. But I, I think, I think everybody would prefer maybe a little more flow. It's just, it's just funner to shoot, you know? It is. And and no fear is the perfect example of that. I mean, when you're having a good day and, and you're on target, it flows and it's super, super fast. But if you're having a bad day, it's, <laughs> it's just a sea of posts and it's you know, you hit post after post after post. And, and the game's just really mean, <laughs> you know, but you know, it's not the game's fault. You know, if, if you're, if you're on and you're accurate, it's an awesome game. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. I've got, I've got a twilight zone and I, I think I can hit the clock target more consistently than any shot in the game. It's like right up the middle, and I just end up bashing that clock target instead of hitting the ramps when I should when right. on a bad day. Right. So did you want to talk at all about Zofia and Nordman over at AP? Anything else industry-wise? Being that you're so connected to Stern, I, I don't want to push the subject on that. Yeah, I mean, I there's not really much to say. You know, I like I said, I've worked with Dennis on Wonelli, and I worked with him on Elvira, of course. I worked with him a little bit, you know, back in the Williams days on Demoman and stuff, but not too much. And I mean, I wish, you know, Dennis all the luck in the world. I hope he can go there and make some great games. And he's a good guy, and I, I like his games. So, oh, sure. um, you know, that'll be great. Sophia, again, I know her from uh, the Bally Williams days, and, and she's a strong engineer. And so I, I, I'm assuming those two are paired up. I don't know that that's true. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but, I just yeah. know they're working there. Yeah, I know they're working there, and I, I hope it all goes well for them. Any thoughts on, on Deep Root, just while we're blowing past some of the other, you know, startup companies or companies that are coming up with new stuff? Yeah, I mean, I've seen pictures of their stuff. I haven't seen a game yet, and it looks interesting, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, it, it seems like manufacturing is the is the Achilles heel of, of any company, really, you know. Yeah, you know, we you know there there's an old saying in manufacturing and it, and it's not only true to pinball but it's true to everything you know it's it's easy to make one of something it's not too bad to make 10 of something it's nearly impossible to make a thousand of something 
And, and that's, you know, like I said, I've been in a lot of other industries and it's true of all those industries, you know, making one is nothing, making 10 isn't so bad, but when you're trying to make a thousand of something or, you know, 50 a day of something, it's all those things we talked about with serviceability and the way you assemble things, that's a whole extra project, you know, an additional job on top of just the creating something cool. And if you don't, pay as much attention to those details as you do the cool factor details, it's nearly impossible to build a lot of them. Yeah. So, you know, companies, they, if you're not from the manufacturing world, you, you, they figure it out. Takes a lot longer than you think, but they figure it out. (laughs) Or they don't figure it out. (laughs) Or they don't. And then they go away. But, (laughs) but you know, it's, it's not trivial and just is what it is. What, what is it about when you when you start going to scale, very large scale manufacturing that becomes so, is it just the sheer size of it? And also pinball machines are just huge anyway, and there's so many small parts. It just becomes like a, a spider web of, of problems. It, well, it does. And the issue always comes down to, you know, there's a lot of parts which require a lot of sourcing resources to bring them all in. Um, and then just the assembly labor has to be relatively skilled. You know, we're engineers and stuff. And when we put something together, we've had tools in our hands since we were kids, right? Because we're engineers and that's what we do. Um, but then you get out on, a, on an assembly line and, and you have people putting things together who are not mechanically enabled and, and they haven't built, you know, they haven't been building model cars and model trains and things their entire life. And so how they put things together is different. And so there has to be a clear assembly order and there has to be lots of instructions and there has to be lots of training. And when you look at all the mechs on a pinball machine and all of them have so many screws and washers and nuts and all that stuff, it just, it's a lot, it takes a great amount of effort to put all those things together correctly so that they all work so that you can screw them to the play field that so that you can make a game. And it's it's a huge undertaking that I think is, you know, people look at and go, oh, I can put that together. It's easy. Yeah, but you, you have to be able to put together many, many the exact same <laughs> way in a day. You know, this is it goes all the way back to Henry Ford when he invented, you know, what he called the assembly line. Right. I mean, back in the day, people built cars one off one at a time. And he, you know, he built his company on the fact that he built an assembly line and he built them all the same way. And they were all the same and trained people and had stations and all the things he did that we, you know, we learn about in history class that pertain to a modern factory today. Do you think towards the end of Bally Williams, was it a lot harder for them being that the game runs got shorter, especially with like WPC 95, like Congo forward, was it harder for them not only to keep the line busy, but changing titles so so much more frequently. Back, you know, with Adam's family, you know, twenty thousand or uh, those games that were selling in the tens of thousands of units. Was it harder when they went to shorter um, time spans on the titles to for the assembly line to be as efficient, or or was it the same because it was such a well oiled machine? No, they were they were an extremely well oiled machine. Um, even on those short runs, you know, their day rates were as far as I recall, were pretty much consistent. That's amazing. Uh, Yeah. So the issue wasn't the fact that, you know, they were running shorter and manufacturing had an issue with that, you know, those games weren't running as long and they could build them as fast. 
and then they needed another game and then another game and and you know the profitability in building 5000 games is not the same as the profitability in building 20000 because you're buying in so much more bulk and and whatnot yeah well yeah and i mean it costs you x amount of money to to design and engineer a project and and make up whatever number that is you know that's you know 10 dollars or or a million dollars or 5 million dollars whatever it doesn't matter it costs the same so if it costs 5 million dollars to make Adam's family, but you run 20,000 of them, you, you know, paying that $5 million back becomes easy. But if it costs you $5 million to make Congo and you only make 5,000 of them, now the cost to pay back all that development money is a lot harder. So the profits from those machines, you know, shrinks considerably. That's a really good point. From maybe what you heard working there, conceptually, just as far as designing the game, maybe not the profitability of the game after it came out. What, what do you think was the most expensive game they ever built or designed at Valley Williams? Oh God, I don't know. Um, I really don't know. I mean, I know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess Adam's family was pretty complex with the clock, some of the stuff going on there. Um, but honestly, I really, I, I couldn't Hard even take a guess. Yeah. It would probably have to be one of the super pins, but I was like, you know, which one is. <laughs> yeah. Know? I know. You uh, mean Roadshow had the two heads and it had a lot going on. Yeah. Um, the Monopoly Money, that mini game, you know, it had the coin dispenser in the back box, which was something, you know, they hadn't really done before. Oh, like Safe Cracker? Safe Cracker, right. Yeah. Um, it was supposed to be Monopoly, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I, but no, I really, I don't. I have no idea which what was the most expensive game. Let's move into the main feature, uh, the story of, of Cactus Canyon. I mean, it's it's a pretty remarkable story. You know, two guys, yourself and, and, and Matt, who had really never been in the lead designer captain's chair at that point, coming together, working after hours in secret to fill what you guys thought was a foreseeable upcoming void in the production line. Can you give us, you know, your story, how it all come together? Because it's been quite a while and there's a lot of new people in pinball that maybe have never heard it. Sure. So, yeah, I was, so I was George Gomez's um, project engineer at the time. And, you know, in that quiet time in between games, I started laying out uh, my own play field. You know, I had a lot of ideas and I really liked pinball. And, and I, so I started laying out my own play field. And then at some point we knew that they were looking for, we knew that management was looking for a new game designer. They had said that they were looking for a new game designer. And um, so there was actually talk in house about, you know, Hey, we want a new game team. We need a new game team. We need to, you know, we're going to, we're going to look inside first to see if we can move someone into that role. Well, I had already started laying out a play field uh, and I was just doing it at night and in my spare time and stuff. And I had a design, you know, pretty far along. So I went to Matt and I said, hey, you know, they're looking for a new game designer and I got a play field laid out and I think I can get this thing built. Are you interested in programming it? And we can show it to everybody. I said, and we can do this game. And he was on board immediately. He's like, yeah, he'd love to do that. We, we had wanted to work together and Matt and I had not worked together prior to that. So, you know, in at night, on weekends and stuff, I got the, I got a play field built and uh, Whitewood, the first Whitewood, and, and I got it to Matt. Matt got it programmed up. So then there was there was a meeting day at, at Stern where everybody was going to present their ideas to be the new game designer. And there were five or six of us that were going to, you know, show our new ideas. 
And so the management team came around and they had gone to other people and other people had, you know, they had some sketches and they had some ideas and they talked about, oh, you know, it could, my game could be this or that. Uh, and then they got to my, uh, my office and I opened the door and brought them in and I'm like, here's your next game. And Matt and I were standing there and it was <laughs> flipping and it was lit and it was making noise. And I'm like, here, flip it. Here's your next game. And they started flipping it. And so we were the only ones that actually brought anything real to the table for the first review of games. Right. Right. And they're just like, where'd you get this? And we're like, well, you know, we just kind of worked, you know, at night and stuff and got this done. And, and they were just, you know, they were pretty blown away by the fact that, you know, everyone was showing pictures and sketches and waving their hands and they got to Matt and I, and we had a flipping Whitewood for them. And then, so they were a little shocked by that. So they said, okay, well, we're going to give everybody two weeks to build their Whitewood. <laughs> that. <laughs> That's a timeline. <laughs> right. They're like, well, okay, you know, let's give everybody a shot at building a Whitewood. And so they gave us another, two, so I had another two weeks, Matt and I had another two weeks. And so we improved upon our Whitewood and other people tried to screw together Whitewoods. And then they came back after two weeks and, and saw what other people had been able to do in two weeks. And then again, it was, you know, pretty clear that Matt and I were pretty far ahead of the rest of the pack on, on what there right. was. And so at that point, they greenlit. So they were pretty shocked. Who was in management at the time? Uh, you know, when they were coming around, you're like, well, you know, check out what I got in my office here. Oh, it, well, it, you know, it was Ken and Neil and Larry and, and Jim Patla, um, Steve Ritchie, George Gomez, um, Pat Lawler. I mean, all, you know, that's who the, we're doing the review at the time. So I, I was curious when you started working on the layout, was that 97 or was that, you know, 96 and, and you kind of just piddled through 97, you know, how did, when was the initial uh, work on the Whitewood done? It had to have been, I left and I, I went to Midway in 99. And so it had to have been, yeah, it had to have been 97 uh, right after we finished NBA. Right. So we finished NBA, we got off the production line, things had slowed down, that was my quiet time, and that's when I started on it. Okay, yeah, because, you know, it, looking at um, the release schedule, it looked like Monster Bash came out in July of 98, Cactus Canyon came out in October of 98, then Pinball 2000 in like January of 99, somewhere right. in there. Uh, early 99. So realistically, I mean, you guys did this from conception to production in... I mean, was it even a year? No, it was short. Yeah, we had a short schedule. And and we didn't get it done either. We, you know, we ran out of time because of PIN 2000. Um, so Matt never really finished the code. It was never finished. Yeah, the, the code wasn't finished. So the, the layout, the artwork was, was done. Um, as far as the code, I traveled uh, this past weekend to play it because I, I started thinking about it. I got to play this game once, and when I came back around at the show I was at, it was off. So uh -oh. something had happened, and, and so my memory was extremely fuzzy about the game, and I was like, you know, I really, to do it justice, I, I want to I play it again. I want to put some time on this game. And as you know, the, you know, did they actually make 925, or was it nine, 903, or is it kind of unknown? Uh, I, I thought it was 925. Okay. Okay. There's like some confliction there, but it, it doesn't, either way, it's, it's, it's a hard game to track down, but we, there's one special location here in North Carolina that, that has it. 
and I was there. It's the first time I've been out of the house to to go to any arcade since the pandemic started. So I got up and went really early to play it. Several things that really stuck out to me because this game, you know, was fully functioning. Was it your idea to, to do the the plunge ramp? That's almost like taxi. It's like a mini like bowl. It was, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's like the only other game I've ever seen that on. I, I thought that was really neat. Yeah, that was fun. And, and it was, you know, it, it's a vac form ramp and it was relatively easy to make. And it, it adds, it just adds some good motion when you start. You know, you plunge and then you, you get, get ready for the shot and then it comes on down, feeds the flipper, and it's a fun shot. Yeah, that's super cool. An- another shot that I-, I never get tired of hitting. It, I mean, for the time you did it in, what's ridiculous is how smooth it shoots. I mean, it's it's kind of absurd. Like, really, the only stop you have is either inner orbit beside Bart or the outer left orbit going into the pops. There's two gates there to keep the ball from coming back out to feed the rollovers and the pops. Mm-hmm. But every other shot is like a super combo. Like, you can just keep hitting, you know, all these shots. But the the far right shot that you would on a lot of games you would think is a right orbit is a ramp, and it's kind of hidden under that that skill shot ramp. So it's a really cool return that you're not expecting. You know, it is. It is. That's a hard shot. I mean, it's way out on the flipper tip, um, but yeah, it's a fun shot. And you're right. It it so it allowed the orbit to come in, which makes the orbit easier to shoot. Um, and then it you know it's fun because you go out there and then it comes back and it's a feed to the other side. And, you know, what I what I like and what I did a lot with that game is each time it returns, it flips flippers. So a right flipper shot will return to the left flipper. A left flipper shot will return to the right flipper. Um, and so you can if you once you get going and you got good flow, you can keep flipping, you know, left side, right side, left side, right side, left side and, and multiple ways to do that. And that's that was the goal was to have it be fast, smooth, and you could continue to do that. I'm a big fan of that as well. Returning to the other side to, to crisscross, almost like some Mark Ritchie, you know, Taxi actually, you know, kind of has that crisscross ramp feel. This one doesn't necessarily, I guess, crisscross like directly in front of you, but you also were able to fit in, I guess, a pseudo center ramp with the train track. And um, I know in a prior interview, what was going to be the difference in the center ramp you guys started with um, compared sure. to what we got? So originally the center ramp, and, and for a long time in, in the development process, the center ramp was a V ramp. And so it w- you could shoot up the center and you, the ball could go either left or right. Okay. Um, and, and I went round and round with various versions of that to get that to work right. Um, and, and this is exactly what I was talking about before, about, um, you know, I, I fought that ramp. For, for months, it seemed like. And, and I, you know, it went from being kind of clunky because the problem, the problem with a split ramp like that is that, you know, if you're on the right side of the ramp, it goes to the right. If you're on the left side of the ramp, it goes to the left. But if you're in the middle, there's always a split in the middle. And if you hit that straight on, it either jams or it rattles or it comes back at you. You know, you're in the middle of the ramp and you're like, I made that ramp and then the ball's rejected and it feels bad. And so I, you know, I struggled and struggled and struggled with that ramp. And I got it to the point where it was, it was pretty good. I mean, it, it was, it only rejected a very small percentage of the, of the shots. That's the kind of thing you would do. You would sit down and you would shoot that ramp and you'd count like you'd shoot it 200 times and you'd say, okay, I got, I got 
five rejects and then you tweak on it and then you'd sit down for two hours and you'd shoot that ramp for another 200 times and you're like oh i got four rejects okay i'm getting better and then you'd do something else and you shoot that ramp 200 times and you got oh i got 10 rejects obviously that didn't work <laughs> right and and you would do that again and again and again and um and i got it to the point where it was pretty good it was pretty good and then i had george shoot it and larry shoot it and i had a bunch of different people shoot it and and everybody said the same thing. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's, not, you know, <laughs> it's just not perfect. It's not. It's not, it's not bad. <laughs> and then finally, we're like, you know, no, let's just, uh, you know. And I had an, I had, I already had, because at one point Larry said to me, he's like, well, what if we decide this is just just not good enough? I said, oh well, I'm going to move this ramp over here and move the shot over here, and then poof, and then it'll be all done. And he's like, well. What, just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> All right. And I gave up and I fixed it and we ended up where, where we are. But but again, that's the normal evolution of all these products. You you have something in your head and, and no matter how cool you think it is, you're stuck with the reality of this just doesn't work right or it's just not good enough or, you, you know, you just can't make that that way. And, and you have to bring it back into reality and make it good product. And that's what, that's what happened with that center ramp. So it sounds like you, you did 90% of the layout. I mean, did, did Matt tweak it at all when you brought in like your first initial white wood or, or, you know, did you guys discuss making small changes? Oh, sure. I mean that, again, that's standard that, that happens on every single game, no matter who the designer is or who the engineer is, you know, once you start flipping the game more and once that, you know, the programmer starts putting rules in and you start seeing how the game flows and what works and what doesn't work, we tweak things all the time. Gotcha. But but conceptually, pretty much your baby, really. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it was my layout, my, my design, and then Matt, you know, obviously rules and code and all that stuff was Matt. When did you guys decide a Western theme? Like, was that from the get-go? Like, this would be cool, nobody's really done, a, you know, a Western theme. Maybe Cactus Jacks would be, you know, the weird Gottlieb game, but it wasn't like a shootout, OK Corral kind of thing. Right. It, yeah, from the beginning, we wanted a Western game. You know, we like we like we wanted the big sky sound. You know, we, we were very we were very interested in the sound and the music, thematic, big sky, old, big encompassing kind of area to go to. You know, the the world to take to when you play. And uh, and I'm a big fan of westerns, and and there hadn't been a western game in a very long time. Obviously, we wanted our own theme. We wanted a unique theme. We didn't want a a, a licensed theme. And so, yeah, we, we knew it was going to be a Western game. We didn't come up with Cactus Canyon until we were well on our way, but uh, it was always going to be a Western game. And, and I actually talked to uh, Adam Ryan, who did the, the Dot Matrix animations, and he had a lot of really cool stuff. But it was funny, he was talking about how you guys may be thinking about using the uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, the bow, wow, wow, right. <laughs> type sound effect. He said, he said they couldn't believe how expensive that was going to be. It was, it was almost like monster mash and, and, and monster bash. Like they, you know, why it's not in the game is just because it wasn't cost prohibitive. Right. Yeah. It was very expensive to license some of that stuff. And he, he also mentioned that above his desk or on his desk that he had tombstone on loop because he wanted those action shots of, you know, guys in gunfights getting shot, falling over. And, and he wanted to incorporate as much of that as he could into the dot matrix. And he got time. I guess he, he was on a short schedule too. What he got done looks amazing. You know, it looks really good, especially the, uh, where you get the, the payout uh, for the, the bounty 
Mm -hmm. uh, that animation's really cool where the guy's dropping all the money. Yeah. Yeah. And the extra ball where we shoot the holes in the fence and then the, yeah. <laughs> the hole opens up and the extra ball is there. Yeah. He did a fantastic job. We're real happy with how that all turned out. So it sounds like when you guys started working on Cactus Canyon and even kind of got the green light, like you, you're going to be the next game design team. Had the layoffs started? Had any layoffs happened at that point? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Because I, I was curious, you know, it seemed like they, they didn't have a design team with a game kind of set in stone at this point. Was everybody just shifted over to Pinball 2000? And, you know, they, they were kind of scrambling because they were out, man, working on that project and still keeping the line fed. Yeah, I mean, we were, so Monster Bash was going on. We were behind Monster Bash with Cactus Canyon. At that point, you know, they had started development work on Pinball 2000. And so resources were, were being, you know, sent over there. But, I mean, that was normal. There were resources for every team. Um, and, again, Pin 2000 was a big undertaking because not only was it a play field, but it was a whole new cabinet and a whole new concept. And it had more, you know, animation and stuff because of what it was. So, you know, in the beginning, it, it started out just like a normal normal game, you know, standard design team. And then as the concept grew, more and more resources were put towards it. At the same time, you know, regular pinball was really drying up. You know, that pinball went through a whole period there where nobody wanted pinball, nobody was playing pinball. Um, and so demand for our product, you know, you talked about uh, Congo only making 5,000 Congos. Well, we didn't only make 5,000 Congos because we couldn't make them anymore. We made them because they couldn't sell them. And so, you know, demand was really falling off on the pinball side. So, you know, the, the company knew that they had this pin 2000 thing and they thought that could revitalize the industry. And so they did push resources towards that and resources on the normal side started, you know, got diverted as they should have. And so that's what happened with Cactus. I mean, they were ready for pin 2000. They needed all the rest of the resources to finish it because they were trying to hit a, a launch date. And at some point, they're like, you guys are done. <laughs> you guys are done. We're moving on. <laughs> so Were they just wanting to try a new design team? Because since the layoffs hadn't happened, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm sure they could have went to Steve or Pat or, or somebody and said, hey, can you give us a game? Like, how quickly can you guys throw together a game? Uh, I wasn't sure if all, all those guys were working on Pin 2000. And, or they just said, hey, you know, let's, let's give somebody else a shot at designing a game. Yeah, I mean, when we started Cactus, they were the, the company was actively looking for another team. Okay. So okay. That, you know, there was demand in the schedule that they knew they needed another team. And instead of bringing in somebody from the outside like they had done the last couple times, you know, they brought in John Papaduke and, you know, they brought in new designers while, while we were there. They decided to, you know, take internal people and create a brand new game team from that because they had gotcha. demand. And that's, that's Matt and I. We were, we were that new team. Yeah. Yeah. That history at Williams, I never got a, a lot of a clarification, you know, when did, you know, were people laid off at this point? It's so, so it sounds like everything happened really, really quickly, you know, from like 97 to 99, you know, it, um, it, it did. It was a big transition because again, the, the market for pinball kept shrinking. Um, they had this idea for pin 2000, but at the same time, the gaming side, you know, WMS gaming was actually, they were finally starting to make inroads as well. So, so not only was the pinball market going away and, and it got much smaller in the following years, um, the casino side, the, the slot machine side was actually growing. And so, you know, from management side, it was easy to go, well, 
not selling many of these, selling a lot more of those. <laughs> Let's focus the money over there. And, and you know, that's what happened. So it, it wasn't it wasn't like pinball was the only thing WMS was doing and they were clinging on, you know, with their fingernails until they died. They, they just pivoted and they started, they put more resources and moved into slot machines, which allowed them to very quickly eliminate the resources from the pinball side. It, which is kind of unfortunate. I mean, because Pinball 2000, I mean, came out the gate pretty strong. I mean, the numbers seem to bounce, you know, came 6,000, almost 7,000 units, I think, of um, uh, Revenge from Mars. Mm-hmm. So kind of, I guess at that point, it, they were like, look, let's just, you know, cut ties and, and just move it all over to, to slots. Yeah, they did. I mean, at, at some point, it was a business decision that, you know, Had to we, happen. we can make a lot more slot machines faster, cleaner. You know, it was it was it was the better business at the time. So it was easy to just, you know, put pinball to bed. And it's funny talking about Pinball 2000 because Adam and John both kind of had similar stories about how if you weren't working on Pinball 2000, it was like a super secret, like janitors weren't allowed in there in in the conference room. Uh, You know, you guys were kind of left to your own devices to finish Cactus as quickly as possible. Is that that kind of how you, you remember it? Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. We, they took, they took half the engineer. We had an entire floor, the second floor in the building at, th- at 3401 California was engineering. And there was a stairway in the middle and you'd come up the stairways and you could turn left or right. And they put a door in on the left side and put a lock on that door. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. If you weren't part of the pin 2000 team, you could not go into the pin 2000. That, so the whole left side became pin 2000 and the whole right side was what was left of normal engineering wow, and, wow. and if you are not a pin 2000 team member you weren't even allowed in there so i mean i never saw i mean i prior prior to that lockdown i knew what was going on but and then once they did that and locked everything away um i didn't see it until you know it was just about done wow that's amazing so you didn't actually see the finished product till it was pretty much finished yeah it was pretty close before i before i saw it because i was not i was active on cactus canyon so i didn't have authority to be in the pin 2000 area of course yeah and and john said uh we uh we pretty much were left alone we had nothing to lose and we all got along so we gave it our best and man he he really did a great job i love the head artwork on on cactus with the the uh, sheriff badge and the cactus kind of leaning back, and then if you read the help wanted ad, it's really really funny. Really strong art package for the timeline. You know, you guys were on. Yeah, John is a a great artist, and and you know when we first started it, he was the guy I wanted to work with. You know, I had worked with him on some of the Gomez games, and you know he's just phenomenal. And so, you know, the fact that I was lucky enough to get John, that he had time in his schedule and he could do it. I mean, that was, I was so excited about that. And, and that artwork's phenomenal. I mean, he just, yeah, he killed it. it's amazing. So th- this is a George Gomez uh, quote. Uh, he, he said this before and I always stuck with me because he had another bite at the apple with Batman. You know, he did Dark Knight and then he come back and did Batman 66 and kind of got to rework that layout. Mm-hmm. If you had another bite at the apple for Cactus, would you, would you go back and add the saloon doors and the lit drops with with what you have today technologically? I, I would. Yeah. I mean, I really like the saloon doors. And again, I, you know, I had a working version of those um, and then we had to take them out. So yeah, I would like to put that back in. At one point, the train that crosses across the play field, uh-huh. it, it actually, originally it captured the ball 
And then at different points along its journey, it would spit the ball out and drop it on the play field. Interesting. Yeah. And okay. so, you know, that again, that's a, that's another mech that for reliability uh, reasons, mm-hmm. you know, we had to remove that from the game. So, you know, I would, I'd like to go back and put that in and, you know, one of the, one of these days I'm going to get that V ramp to work. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, well, I'm not done. It hasn't beaten me. Yeah. <laughs> Being that you've designed a machine for NASA, I don't think Cactus Canyon is going to kill you or beat you. <laughs> yeah, right. so the saloon doors, they were, I mean, it seems like that would almost kind of be like a, a bash toy, toy that would open, you know, the medieval madness kind of uh, drawbridge. Uh, was that a reliability thing or a cost thing, why it was pulled? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was it, it was pretty complex because it had to swing both ways and it had the lock and it had to take a, a hard hit from a ball and... You know, it was a bash toy and would have been fun, but the bad guy's a bash toy anyway. Right. So, you know, it was a bash toy in front of a bash toy. And so, again, it's like, you know, is it, is it, does it really add the next huge level of fun to the game? And the answer was no. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's like, it's like stage drops, right? You know, you've right. seen three drops in a row and, and it, it, it's kind of like that, right? Oh, yeah. you know, do you need three drops in a row or just one resettable drop? It, so, yeah, it, it was not a big impact on the game play to remove it and, again, make the game a little bit cheaper, but make it more reliable, more robust. You know, one more thing you don't have to try to fix in a dark bar. So it made sense to take it out. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions uh, our own Dennis Kriesel had. Uh, he, he's one of the hosts of the, the pinball show about the train toy. Was was it implemented uh, as originally envisioned? And you pretty much answered that as, you know, it was going to be much more complex, it sounds like. Um, and and was, was it always meant to be, I guess, was it going to be a full train since it could do all that? And, and what was the, the idea of cutting it kind of in half? Um, it, in order to make it, so that's a vacuum form. Okay. And so, you know, when you vacuum form, you only get half. And oh, so, okay. yeah. So when it was, when it was a more complex mech, it had, you know, it had two sides and it had a bunch of mechanism mechanism in it. And it had a little lever that would trip, that would kick the ball out. But when we, you know, got all that out of there, you know, then it, leaving it a vac form made it more cost effective to manufacture. Because it's sure. just a vac form, but then you only get one side. And so, you know, it, it tells the story. You know it's train. It tells the story of what it is. Oh, it's without, still super cool, yeah. Yeah, um, without adding, you know, more cost and more more complexity to it. Now, it kind of, you know, just looking at it, 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 it was kind of a, a cable mech with a, I'm, I'm assuming, a servo under the play field. One thing that kind of, I don't know if it, you know, was my imagination playing it the other day, but... Could, could it move at different speeds, or, or was I off on that? It, it can move at different speeds, um, okay. but it, it's designed as, so it's a timer. The train actually is a timer. So you have to complete polyperil before sure. the train gets to the end and runs her over. So we do run it at a constant speed because it's basically a visual timer, then you're trying to beat the train to save the girl. Yeah, it seemed like the first time I played that mode it was moving kind of at a steady speed and then the second time i played it it almost seemed like to me it moved a little bit faster or maybe i was in a different different mode and didn't realize it but um i did make it to high noon so that was cool oh but, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I do love the uh the quick draw you know the shootout scenario 
was that the first time? I mean, I, I don't know um, seeing that on another Williams game, having the up post in the in lanes to stage the ball. No, that was the first time that was done. Wow, that's really yeah. cool. Because uh, I don't, you know, if you've looked at uh, Keith Elwin's Jurassic Park, you know, he he put one in the in lane to stage the ball like that. He did, and and George used it. George used it on a Stern game as well, I think. But you know, that was always that was the unspoken rule that has always been in pinball you know if if a designer creates a mech you can't use his mech until his game's done with production oh, okay and then it's free and then if you want to put it in your game you can so so you can't steal a mech from a designer but you can use his mech after, after his game is run okay well that makes sense uh and with the the technology we have now do you think the the lit drops would be you know wouldn't be an issue as far as reliability so we went we went round and round with the material and the material at the time to have a translucent material, you know, they were originally yellow um, and would light up. And we just, I, again, that was another one of those battles. I fought a long time in that project, trying to get a material that was strong enough to take the beating that a drop target takes. And, and in the end, they just were not reliable enough. And then we turned them into black and we put decals on them. There's some new blends of materials today that are much stronger that I would be willing to try to try that again. See what happens. Right. So is there anything you would change, you know, just layout wise of cactus? Obviously we spoke about the toys and some different features that you had to pull that you would maybe put back in, but layout wise, is there anything you're like, ah, maybe I would have done that differently. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think the game turned out pretty well. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with how the game turned out. I mean, that's not to say, you know, if I if I do another game, I would have a different layout, of course. But oh, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm happy with the way Cactus turned out. I'm I think it's good. I think you nailed it. Yeah, I mean, I was like really, I'm a lot more experienced player than I was obviously six years ago when I first got in the hobby, and just you know, when you immediately start finding those shots and they feel really good, you you know, it puts that smile on your face, and you're like, man, this thing shoots great, you know, and. Uh, and it and it gives you a little different flavor on a fan layout having that far ramp shot. It, it's really neat. Well, thanks. How would you feel to see this game gets remade? It's it's the biggest rumor from Chicago Gaming that Cactus Canyon is going to be the next remake. You know how is how would that make you feel to see this game available for purchase again and back in out in the wild? Um, I, I mean, I've heard that rumor as well. I don't know if it's actually true or not. Um, you know, I have seen some of the other remakes that they've done uh-huh. and I don't think they flip as well, you know, that just the things they're having to do and, and the things they're re-engineering, you, you know, versus what we did back then. I mean, they're close, but, I, <laughs> but, but they're not the same. I, yeah. I mean, I think an experienced player, if you put, you know, an original game versus a copy side by side and let them play for a while, they're going to play the original game, you know, for sure. So, you know, from that standpoint, you know, it'll, it, it, it's nice that there's going to be more of them out there, but I'm hesitant to think it's going to be as nice a game or as good of a shooting game. I mean, I, I hope they do a good job with it. They certainly haven't called me and asked me if I wanted to come shoot it and tweak it, <laughs> if they're really doing it. Right. So, right. I, I, I mean, who knows who's making decisions about how to do things these days. So, I mean, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I hope they do it justice. I hope they don't beat it up and damage it too badly. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, me too. I mean, 
you know, th- this is a huge, that was actually my next question is if you had played any of the other remakes and what did you think? But there is a, a large kind of um, divide. Maybe I shouldn't say large, but there's, there are uh, a contingency of people that think that they don't feel the same. They just, they're, they're just, they just don't feel quite exactly like, and I know that's hard to do, you know, with, with having maybe different materials and things today, but they just, you know, they just don't feel that it, it flips or, or feels exactly the same as, as the Bally Williams counterparts did. So. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm in that camp. I agree. I, I don't think they flip as nice. Did you ever get to play the, the continued code that Eric Pripke made? Have you heard of that? Oh, I have. I have. <clears throat> and no, I have not played that code. It's kind of, it's kind of unique. I mean, he, he takes elements from other classic Bally Williams games, uh, Attack from Mars, and he kind of implements them in in different ways. Um, I tried to get a, a comment from, from Eric, but I think he was pretty busy. And, you know, I just kind of wanted to see where he was at because I, I think he had modded his game. This may have been about a year ago to add the lit drop targets back. So he, he was working on some stuff like that. But to my knowledge, they haven't reached out to um, Eric either. If the remake's happening to code that game. I, any idea if, if Matt's involved at all or has he, you know, does he even touch pinball any, at any point in his career now? So uh, Eric called Matt and I when he was getting ready to start that. He asked us if we wanted to be involved. Oh, cool. And, and as he talked and talked about really kind of getting off the Cactus Canyon path and, and implementing, like you said, some of the other things, you know, Matt and I both said, well, you know, now you're not really Cactus Canyon anymore. You know, and he, and he started with, I want to finish it. We're like, all right, well, hey, that would be great. Let's finish it and get all the stuff in there that we originally had hoped for. But then he talked about veering off and changing it. And at that point, we're like, you know, if you want to make your own game and take this game and change it, that's great. Hey, more power to you. Do that. But then it's not Cactus Canyon anymore. Now it's Eric's game. <laughs> and, and so at that point, we both said, you know, hey, Eric, good luck. We wish you well, but maybe we should not be involved. And so we weren't involved. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, again, I don't know if Chicago gaming has talked to him about, you know, looking at their game or, or if Eric's game stands is a standalone versus, you know, the original cactus Canyon and, and whatever Chicago gaming's doing. Yeah. I, w- I would hope the original vision is, you know, carried forward because it, if you, you can do a Google search and there's, um, kind of uh, pinball tips or, or rules help. And if you type in Cactus Canyon rules, there's actually an old thread that Keith Elwin typed up about, you know, the rules on Cactus Canyon. And his his thoughts are, you know, had this game had a little more time to be finished, it would be up there with Medieval Madness. So that's, I mean, that's a pretty tall order that if, you know, it'd be great to have the original vision carried all the way through. So, but, but to your knowledge, you know, Matt, who did most of the original code, he's he hasn't touched pinball in quite some time, right? Yeah, I mean, originally, you know, so he left and went to uh, one of the printer companies, um, and he was going to finish it. I mean, it was always his plan to finish it, you know, right. on his own time afterwards. Um, and then, of course, life got in the way, and that didn't happen. So, yeah, I mean, you know, but it's like anything else. If, you know, it would have been great if it had been done, but it is what it is. And, and I think it stands pretty strong, you know, just the way it is. 
I would I would rather have it than a lot of games. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I you, mean, could say, you could say it about any game, right? Oh, if they, you know, if they had another oh, month, yeah. they could have this. Or if they had another month, they could have that, right? <laughs> I, I think with Cactus, it's such a unique story. The, its development, I think it's, you know, it, the mechs are really cool. The, there's so much in the game. It's like, you know, and the fact that it was the last traditional, you know, Valley Williams DMD game. You, you kind of want to, like, make it the best it could possibly be. So, I, you know, I think no matter what, people, would want to keep putting more and more want more and more out of it even though that at that time none of the games were super deep i mean if we're being honest yeah yeah development schedules had really shrunk by that point in time um again when you run when you have a product on the line and you're going to run twenty thousand of them you have a lot more time to get the next game ready you know when you're running five thousand of a game you have a lot less time and so yes development times had shrunk by the time we got there and you're right those games are not very deep but yeah i mean it it is what it is, and, and, you know, we're really glad that it turned out the way it did. Yeah, I think you should be super proud with what, not only the layout, but what you got done in that amount of time. I mean, I, I'm not sure today that it could be done. <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah, know, I don't think I, so. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, the molds, all the stuff, you know, uh, that's pretty unbelievable. So any, anything else on Cactus that maybe, you know, we didn't touch on or you'd like to talk about? or um, I think we covered just about everything. So I do have a, uh, a quick lightning round Q&A uh, with some of the other correspondents that cover other other manufacturers. Brian Cosner, our American pinball correspondent, he wants to know your favorite game of all time and your favorite mech. Um, my favorite game of all time. Uh, on a good day, no fear. <laughs> That's, awesome. When, when I'm having a good day, no fear is really a great game. If I'm having a bad day, NBA. It's an okay. easy game to play. It's an easy, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, you know, No Fear is like one of the best bang for the bucks. I mean, it, really. Yeah, yeah. It, you have to be on, but if you're on, that's a great game. Okay, our uh, Craig Bobby, our Stern correspondent, he would like your thought on Stern's Avengers Infinity Quest and JJP's GNR. I'm not sure if you have any time on on either one. So I've never, I've never seen a GNR in the wild. I've never sure. seen. I've only seen video and stuff of it, so I can't really comment on it. Other than it's very pretty. I it mean, is pretty. it looks phenomenal. And again, I have very little time on Avengers as well, um, just because I've had my head in in the last project I'm on. And unfortunately, you know, when you're when you're grinding hard on a project trying to get it done, you really don't have time to even go flip other games. And so, of course. so yeah, I have no time on either of those games. Have you ever uh, wanted to design a topper? It sounds like you've done quite a few of them. I've done uh, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I knew you. You actually did a lot of toppers for slots too, right? I, well, yeah. I so I ran the the topper studio for WMS, um, and so we did all the all the advanced toppers on all the slot machines for the first. I was with them for six years doing that. So awesome. So um, I guess we'll condense that favorite lead designer to work with. I, you know, I really like working with George. I've, I've worked with him on a lot of games. I've worked with all the other designers on other things. You know, I've worked with Dennis and I've I worked with John a little bit and I've done mechs for Steve. I've done toppers for Keith, but I've never done any game work with Keith. Did I work with, I'm not sure if I ever did a mech for Pat Lawler. I don't think I did. I don't remember. I don't remember doing a mech for Pat. That, that um, might be a good matchup. Since yeah. we haven't had, him, uh, he's, he's over but at JJP. He is, he is, and but I, I mean, I love working with George. Um, we've done a lot of games together. Um, we really, we have similar likes in in what we like in a game, so that's very helpful. And he is so creative and and got such vision for a game that 
you know, he makes great games and, and to be part of that with him is really just, that's just awesome. Yeah. I work with George. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is phenomenal. I mean, and it sounds like, um, just going through my notes here, you've answered our Ken Rudberg. He's our Jersey Jack correspondent. And then the Dennis Kriesel question, you, it looks like we covered those. Now, did you work on uh, Lord of the Rings at all with George? No, I don't think I did anything for Lord of the Rings. Okay. Okay. I just I did a mech for him on his Playboy game. Um, okay. I was I was actually out of the industry at the time, and he was uh, working on that centerfold mech where the centerfold uh-huh. unfolds. And then he finally he called me and he's like, "Can you do this?" And I'm like, "Of course I can do that." And so I did that. <laughs> I did that mech for him, and that's a very cool mech. I mean, we get that thing to open in two different ways, all with one motor, one cam, a couple of springs. I mean, it's it's a complex mech. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's a game I don't see on location very often, but I, I do know one collector that has it. So I, next time, maybe I'm over at his place. I, I need to check that out. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, try that mech. So let's do a game room update for you. I think the last time I heard you was like in 2006 at that expo fireside chat you guys did. And I think you had a Corvette, Johnny Mnemonic, No Fear, George's Playboy. Is anything entered the game room or left, you know, in that in, our, in this period of time that's passed? So I, I have an Elvira now, obviously. I brought an Elvira nice. home. Um, and I, I have a Hydra Thunder. I have a Galaga. But uh, no, pinball-wise, um, the only thing I added so far was the Elvira. Gotcha. Um, I did sell my Rolling Stones. I had a Rolling Stones, but I did oh, sell okay. my Rolling Stones. I'm, 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 I'm struggling. I have, I'm out of room. My Elvira's actually still in its box in the garage because I'm trying to make room. I'm trying to decide what to move out. So. Oh yeah, yeah. It's tough. I think you know, even in in your shoes designing these things, we are all up against the space and constraint. You know, at some at some point, it doesn't matter if you if you can fit ten or twenty or thirty games, you hit the wall eventually. You know. Right. When will we see uh, mechanical signature again on a game? Uh, next year sometime with the team right now, and you'll see something from us next year. Very cool. I, I guess summer. This summer you'll see stuff from us. Oh, this summer? Yeah, okay. sorry, yeah. Next, I, I guess it is 2021. That's. <laughs> I'm so buried. I can't I'm not, I don't even remember that it's New Year. Yeah, uh, this summer you'll see new stuff from me. Very cool, very cool. So are you working on anything else outside of pinball consulting-wise? or? I am. I have other clients uh, in other industries, nothing in gaming. Um, but in other, other industries, I have clients that I still work with. So well, I think we should put a bow on this. It's like, you know, coming up on the hour and a half mark, anything else you want to say to the, the pinball community or no, just thanks for your time. And it's really great that you guys are trying to capture what happened in those, those waning days of the belly midway days. That was a great time. That was a great company. Um, and yeah, it'd be a shame if that history got lost. So. I appreciate what you guys are doing. There's a great show on the network. If, if you ever find yourself with some time just to listen, it's uh, Silverball Chronicles, and, and they kind of go designer uh, by designer and, and talk about you know their history. And, and it's kind of one of those timeless pieces that, that you could listen to at any time. You know, It's not really dated with just the news or anything. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Tom. Would you like to come back sometime? Sure. Yeah, whatever. You know, If you ever have anything and, and you need me to talk <laughs> about it, no problem at all. I'm, I'm always here. I think I think I'll reach out when I see your your next game and just maybe get a quick quick tidbit about how that maybe that next mech came about. Okay, yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Sure, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this pinball show interview. Stay tuned for more cool tidbits from the original Cactus Canyon team in the upcoming weeks, as well as another interview with a designer we haven't seen in quite a while. Once again, I would like to thank Tom Capera for coming on. 
I could have easily talked to Tom for another three hours. Also, if you enjoyed this show, drop me a line at mtmpinball at gmail.com. Oh, and one more thing. Did you catch that snazzy Western intro music? You know, the one from the beginning of the episode? Well, name the artist and the song and when I sign Dennis Norman Flyer and a signed JJP poster. Until next time, I'm Matt Morrison.